Well, welcome to the Hunt's Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number 366. And today I'm speaking with Zoe. She is going on her very first ever hunt this fall. We are speaking before the hunt as part of our before and after the hunt series. And this is actually the last of the quote unquote before episodes in this series. So like all the other guests, we will be speaking with Zoe later this fall to hear about her hunting experience. But in this first episode with Zoe, we're answering a lot of questions that get overlooked. And it's all about the perspective of a brand new hunter. Zoe had some really great questions that gave us an opportunity to talk about topics that maybe we just don't talk about enough or don't explain the basics of. And it was such a fun episode for me. Yes, it's great to dive into advanced tactics and strategies and etc. But sometimes it's really refreshing to come back to the very basic things that hunters need to know. And honestly, that some hunters maybe are too afraid to ask simple questions on. So it was really an enjoyable episode to get to know Zoe and to answer her questions And I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As always, guys, if you have any questions for us, you can send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. Or if there's a question you want to hear us answer on a future Q&A episode, look for a link in the show description that says leave us a message. And you can use whatever device you're on right now to leave us an audio message that we can then include in one of those future Q&A episodes. Right now, let's dive into this conversation with Zoe. Well, Zoe, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Super excited to chat with you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So it is, uh, this is a unique show for me to talk with someone who's really just really, really getting started. Like occasionally we'll talk to somebody and they're going on like, say their first elk hunt or, you know, a first mountain hunt, but you're pretty new to hunting in general. Um, and I think it's going to be awesome to hear your perspective and the journey kind of up to this point. And obviously with this being part of the before and after series, we'll get to talk with you later this year and really hear how things went. So that's super cool. But to kick things off, just whatever you want to share for kind of like personal introduction and background for who you are, where you're from and um, all that. Yeah, my name's Zoe. I live in Salt Lake City. Um, I'm originally from Washington State, from Seattle. I didn't grow up in a hunting or even particularly outdoorsy family. That's something I discovered Um, my love for the outdoors throughout my twenties and my interest in hunting only really started within the past year and a half, really. Um, so it's very recent. I've always been very into public lands and conservation. Uh, but I spent last summer in Montana doing a lot of gopher hunting, um, for fun and then got more and more interested friends would mention their hunts and I would just have endless questions. I started listening to podcasts. Uh, Last fall, I even went, even though I wasn't hunting, I went and scouted some elk down in Utah um, 
for Labor Day weekend and just had a blast and was thinking that this is something I want to do more seriously. And so the past year or so, I've been just working on educating myself. I got my hunter's license uh, for the state of Utah recently, just got my first rifle. And it it seems like things are coming together um, for this fall. I plan to um, hunt spike only elk in Utah. Yeah. How, how overwhelming has all this been? Or have you been able to not get like too intimidated by it and just kind of stay, you know, curious and optimistic, or has there been times where it's like, Oh man, there's so, there's so much to learn so much to do. I don't know if I can make this happen. Yeah. Super overwhelming. Um, even like the, paperwork and navigating the bureaucracy uh, is frustrating at times, figuring out the best way to use Utah's website to see different units and compare all the different draw options is uh, was definitely a learning curve. And I kind of wish I had grown up in a hunting family for that reason. So I just, it was secondhand to know um, like draw dates because I recently moved to Utah. I wasn't a resident in time for a lot of them. And so that limited my options or things like I had heard there would be leftover mule deer buck permits. Um, and then by the time I really like dove into which units were available, they were like almost all private land where you needed permission. So there've been hiccups like that. Um, I am learning about the hunting process kind of chronologically from when you start, you know, you get your tag, you scout, you stock the animal. I'm doing rifle shooting and that means the next thing I need to learn is how to field dress an elk, which I am very intimidated by. I can, I can picture myself all the way up until I actually have this animal that I've taken and I need to get it to my car. Um, so that will be very intimidating, but it's only, you know, early June. Um, my hunt will be in the fall. So I have time and I'll have a friend who's going with me who I don't think has field dressed an elk himself before, but has helped other people do it. Uh, but that's probably the most intimidating part for me. And then packing it out. Yeah, man. So the, you're hunting with someone that it sounds like has at least some hunting experience, but maybe not a complete picture, at least for themselves firsthand. Right. They've always had help with the dressing and the pack out, um, but are otherwise very experienced. And so I'm very grateful to have a friend who's willing to show me the ropes. Yeah. That's awesome. Have you, in terms of like meats, um, you know, breaking down a elk in the field, I've, I would assume like hopping on YouTube and kind of looking at some of the videos to get that visual idea of the steps involved there. Yeah. So that's what's going to be my plan. I usually watch my hunting YouTube videos while I eat my meals and that's not one that I want to. So I need (laughs) to find a time for that. Uh, And then I have also listened to um, a podcast in which it was another late onset hunter and she was describing her first time um, 
field dressing an animal. Granted, it was a squirrel, so not as big, but she was like a lifelong vegan um, who had gotten into hunting for environmental reasons. And she described her mental processes behind doing it, which is, you know, not something you necessarily get from like a meat eater video. And so I am a little, I'm prepared, I think for the mental aspect. I mean, I'm not like super intimidated by um, things that some people might consider gory, but I'm also not like, have never done it before. So I want to be prepared that it might be more difficult than I anticipate. But also I know that once I get there, like it's got to be done. I'll be chasing daylight. I'll be having to, you know, plan perhaps many trips back to the car. And so it's kind of like, you just got to do what's got to be done and not really a lot of time to psych yourself out of it. Mm, Yeah. One thing I never really uh, thought about this, but as you're describing that and kind of the, the unique experience of the first time and potentially some of like the gore of it, but I grew up in the Midwest. And so here with, and for like whitetail, we would typically gut them in the field, but not ever break them down. So you're not quartering them. You're not doing the gutless method or deboning or anything like that. And then, you know, as you get into like elk and these backcountry situations, um, you're typically not necessarily going to gut them, but do something like the gutless method, uh, whether you do quarter or debone. But I actually find that that's less it's more friendly, right? There's le- there's mm-hmm. less weirdness. There's less actually smell like from a very practical level and things like that by doing the gutless method. Um, and I've never really put two and two together, but with you being a new hunter, I think there's a practical benefit, especially on a, a bigger game like elk of doing the gutless method. But I think it also reduces that uh, potential of getting a little bit turned off by the whole process. Cause you're, when you're doing the gutless method, I mean, you're pretty much just dealing with hide and meat purely and not really getting to the internals. Um, I've never connected that dot, but anyway, (laughs) no, that's a good tip. I just wrote that down. Yeah. If, if you weren't already looking at doing the gutless method, I think, again, I think it's most practical in most situations Mm -hmm. for elk. Um, but I would maybe lean that direction maybe for those reasons with it being your first time as well. Awesome let's let's back up um a little bit and talk about this process you mentioned like navigating how do you legally become qualified to hunt and do your hunter education and then figuring out the states uh you're doing it as a resident now but again not only is the process new to you but you know you've recently moved to utah mm-hmm. a new state and a new process how have you been guided through that or has that been more on your own and doing research Yeah. So I've done that on my own. I knew I wanted to get my hunter license pretty much right when I moved. So I, in Utah, you have an option to do an online course in a field day or an in-person course in a field day. So I did the online course in the field day and the online course was like maybe eight hours. Um, And then the field day was like a full 12 hour day with, you know, it was very hands-on and active. Like we, the members of the class and I, we had to like put on skits on how to correctly handle situations. There was shooting drills. And so I did that. I think it was just like a few days after I moved. I don't even think all my boxes were unpacked. 
And so I was really excited to get that done. It made things feel a little bit more official. And so now I have all my hunting documents. I have my license. And then also in Utah, you have a little certificate. Um, you know, it's like the size of a credit card that you just stick in your wallet and you have to carry it with you whenever you go hunt. And some other Western states require this too. Uh, and that felt like a good first official step, like, okay, I'm doing this. And then after that, my next step was to look at the remaining possible draw or tag dates that I could get in since it was quite late at this point, it was the end of May. And that was something I thought would be easier, but it wasn't, I was hoping to do, you know, start with deer. I think elk is a very ambitious first big game animal, but deer tags are so hard to get in Utah because of how the droughts affecting them and the demand for deer tags. And so I had missed the draw for mule bucks by months, but there are sometimes leftover tags and there weren't this year for rifle. And then I was looking at the antlerless draw, which is coming up soon. And I was optimistic about that. And then I was, you know, getting into all the nitty gritty of like where these units are and what the land is. And it was a lot of, you have to get private landowner permission. And that just did not seem like the hunting experience I wanted since I do come to it from, you know, a public lands background. I'm a member of BHA. I am passionate about public lands activism in my personal life, a bit in my professional life. And so I decided, okay, maybe for having the option to be on public lands and to be less constrained in where I can go, I will, you know, take the plunge and do elk. And then, cause elk is um, not quite over the counter. Like they do sell out. So there's not unlimited, but they usually sell out in like eight hours or so I think last year. And so if you want to do elk, you'll have a good shot at getting it. If you remember the right day to buy your permit and I decided to do spike only so that I could go have the option to go to more units. Um, Cause I really would love to see some massive bulls, even if they aren't the bull for me, cause I'm doing spike only. I would love to see them and be around them and hear them. And that's an important part of the experience for me. And then also it could help me possibly get to know other areas that I may hunt in the future, which was my thinking. And it was so funny. I was listening to your elk hunting podcast last night about how um, it can be important to get to know the same area over and over year after year. And I was like, oh, so I w- did have some intuition that I was onto the right track. Yeah. Um, but now I'm, you know, navigating things like, so I got my rifle which I got through my BHA lifetime membership, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, You know, you can get like a trigger grill or a backpack or I chose the rifle because I need one. Uh, So, you know, I still need to... I, I feel like a couple of years ago, anyway, that was a Kimber. Is that what they're still doing? Is that what you have? So now it's Weatherby. Okay. And I did a Vanguard Creedmoor 6.5. Um, they have probably like 12 options though. So it can, 
a little overwhelming. Um, but you know, I still need to find a scope and a range finder and make sure I buy ammunition while it's, you know, cause I don't want to get into a situation where it's hard to get and I need to get a sling. And then that's when my mind works very chronologically that, okay, I, I can take the animal and then I need all the stuff to pack it out. Right. I'm not just going to like throw it in my backpack. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have um, the tools I need to break it down. So there's still a lot of gear acquisition I need. Um, but I have actually found not actually, that makes it seem like I'm surprised, but I have found your podcast to be very helpful in terms of what gear is maybe not absolutely necessary where I can save money. Cause of course, you know, your first hunt has huge upfront costs. Yeah. Like I don't need the fanciest camo or layers like hiking clothes for all intents and purposes can work well, you know, if they wick moisture and keep you dry and warm and all those yeah. good things. Um, so that's been helpful too, because I think the gear can be really intimidating when you feel like you need a million things. Yeah. How do you, um, so as a brand new hunter, who's not been part of the hunting culture, not even raised in it, but just like not been part Mm -hmm. of it for long. And then I think there's also a difference, uh, at least for this question with you being a female, but how like, I don't know. This is so broad, but I'm just curious, like, is you being new looking at all this stuff you need, or at least trying to figure out what you do and don't need. And there's just a lot of like marketing out there. Like, how does that hit you? (laughs) It makes me feel like there's a lot of fancy things I need. Like I could not believe how much hunting clothes cost when, you know, you look at some of these brands, um, like especially the ones on Instagram that are, you know, and it's like 400 bucks for a jacket. And I was like, I don't really have $400 to spend right now on a jacket, let alone the pants and the underlayers. Uh, I didn't appreciate how expensive of a hobby it was before. Of course you can, you know, feed your family all year long. If you're, um, are able to take animal in your hunt. I think in the beginning, I was really tempted to buy a lot of that stuff. And then I held off and I'm glad I did because now I feel more skeptical of needing the best and newest gear. Like I have a long sleeve camo shirt that I like found for five bucks at Walmart when I was there to pick up groceries and like great. Now I have it. I wore it shed hunting, which you don't really need to wear camo for, I suppose. But I, in the beginning, I thought I was going to buy, you know, this like great outfit, um, you know, top of the line stuff. And now I'm like, I'm going to this first time do with what I can try to borrow stuff. Um, but it can be intimidating, especially once you get in, you hear about people's like wonder, wonderful elk camps and how they set it up. And I was like, I was just going to kind of car camp in my minivan and play it by ear. Um, so there's definitely like financial intimidation as well, because you know, what if it turns out I hate it and then I don't want to spend all this money on it. Um, but 
I think that, uh, you know, like getting my rifle through my backcountry hunters and anglers membership was a good call. You know, the scope and rangefinder will still be cost. I can probably make do with the clothes and hiking boots I have. I mean, I'm outdoorsy, so I have a lot of that um, outdoor level gear it's easy to fall prey to the marketing on Instagram. I mean, they do such a good job. You want to be those people who are just like smiling and looking awesome and have just completed a totally like badass hunt. Yeah. Um, that's probably not what I'm going to look like when I complete my hunt. I'll probably look a little bit more uh, haggard and overwhelmed. Um, but you just have to remember that Instagram isn't real life. Mm. Like for all things, but I think especially for, sure. for hunting, I mean, nobody like posts a picture of them at the end of the, you know, a week long hunt, they took off work time away from their family, spent a ton of money. And they're like standing there in their Walmart camo smiling and not holding anything like that would probably, that might be my Instagram picture. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. Uh, so it's a double-edged sword. I found out a lot from Instagram and social media, but uh -huh. also I'm not sure I'm always finding out the most helpful things for a new hunter. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Do you feel like there is anything um, that's been a, a challenge or like a struggle as a female getting started? I've been lucky in that I haven't really experienced that. And I understand it might not have been that way, you know, even five years ago. Um that there has been a big push to make hunting more inclusive for female hunters. So there's, you know, some like female owned and targeted like hunting gear brands like Azir um, that I follow that I just find um, empowering. They highlight women hunters. I know the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in their magazine, they always have a section on highlighting female hunting voices. And so I haven't experienced it any sort of like exclusivity in terms of my gender. And I, my impression is that that is an intentional effort by the hunting community to make it more inclusive. And so I think I came in at just the right time where women before me had a rougher time and I'm having an easier time. Um, but that is something that I am aware that used to be an issue. I think that I've, I've seen pretty often people describe themselves as late onset hunters. And that helps too with me feeling, you know, any insecurity I feel about not having gotten into this earlier, being so far behind. Um, I think the most insecurity comes from when I describe myself as a hunter people say, you know, what do you do for fun? I say, I hunt. And they ask like, oh, what do you hunt? And, you know, to date, the only thing I've hunted is gophers. Um, and I get, you know, a little nervous to say that, uh, or, you know, they ask, sometimes I'll ask people, like, oh, what are you hunting this fall? Do you have plans? And they'll ask me and I'm, you know, I'll say elk. And, you know, sometimes they have these like big expectations in their head. I feel like, like I've hunted elk before I've hunted big game my whole life. And it's, you know, I sometimes don't always bring up, yeah, for the first time. And um, it's just because I missed all the deer tags and I am well aware I might not end up bringing an elk home. And so sometimes I feel like it's hard 
to describe myself as a hunter when I don't feel like I've executed, even though I'm well aware that not every hunt ends with bringing an animal home. And that doesn't make you any less of a hunter. Sometimes it feels, um, I just get very self-conscious about that. Like I'm an imposter yet, but I mean, I've been working on this for like a year and a half. I feel like a hunter. I, you know, I have my hunting podcast rotation. I have my reading rotation, things like, you know, I had a letter to the editor published about public lands and high country news. And like that to me feels like part of my like hunter credibility is advocating for public lands. And so it's kind of weird when I identify so much as a hunter, but I haven't actually like brought home a big game animal yet. Yeah. I can see where you're like, why you feel that way, but I'm kind of with you on, cause I, I think at the end of the day, you're, you face that intimidation or like that lack of maybe call it authenticity. Cause you haven't done it yet, but you know, everything you've said and what you've done with your effort and your intention and already the way that you're active, like advocating for hunting to me, hundred percent, that makes you a hunter because it's at the end of the day, it's all about the pursuit. Um, and the pursuit's already there, even if your desired end result that you want to achieve someday isn't yet there. And really it's like, I get jealous is the wrong word, but I sometimes like, I, I don't think we appreciate enough the learning process. And I can almost sometimes get envious in certain ways of like, oh man, I wish I could go back to like when everything was new and I was learning things. And as a hunter, you're constantly learning. Like I'm always learning, especially through this podcast, even the conversations I get to have, I'm always learning. But there's something like really special about when everything's new and you're literally figuring stuff out and you're making like big strides in knowledge because, you know, it's easier in the beginning to, to learn. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes we get like ahead of ourselves versus like cherishing that, that season for what it is. So I would say like fully embrace, like where you're at, like really enjoy it and all that more so than worry about like validating yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's great advice. You mentioned, so it sounds like you're just going to kind of like car camp. Sounds like you've spent some time in, in the area you hunt or like when you talk about scouting before, was that a different area? So that's, um, a similar area. And so in Utah, when you get your elk tag, it's statewide. And so, um, it's not restricted to a special unit unless you do a special draw. And I'm just doing the ones that you buy on that one day they go on sale. And so I'm hoping to go back to that same area. Uh, and I, yeah, I was planning on car camping. Um, I'm combined because I am lucky enough to live in Utah. I was, you know, my summer fitness goals were going to be, you know, getting in hunting shape, I can also just go down to where I'm hunting. So I plan to scout quite a bit. Um, so that I'll get an idea about, you know, where I need to be setting up camp. If I need to be, you know, preparing to backpack with my tent in 
but I want to be flexible on the area, um, which is also why I'm drawn to do the elk over the more restrictive deer, because I want, you know, to experience the land fully, not that I haven't up to this point, but experience it, you know, fully as a hunter, um, and really be able, you know, if I see big game over, you know, some big elk over in another unit. And even if I can't, you know, take them because it's no longer a spike only unit, like I want to be able to go see them and learn about them firsthand. Uh, and so I don't have a ton of planned out like approaches to that particular piece of land that I'm targeting yet. Um, but that's something that I plan to do over this summer through, you know, hiking and camping trips. Sounds great. Have you, if we like narrow down away from gear and like where to hunt in terms of units and hunter education and like kind of begin to focus in on just elk in particular and the research that you've done about hunting elk, what have you found to be helpful or that you've connected with, or maybe what have you found that's like, Oh man, they're like, there's this information about elk hunting, but I don't, I'm not sure if that applies or it's confusing to me. So I guess, you know, kind of narrowing just down on elk hunting tactics, if you will. So I always forget that elk have such a great sense of smell. <laughs> um, and that is something that I, you know, when I go, I've been close to elk twice at this point. Um, once in Washington, I was just hiking with a friend and we came across three massive bull elk, like ginormous. He said it was some of the biggest he's ever seen. And we were probably 30, 40 yards away from them for several hours, just watching them. So I feel like I learned a lot about them that way. And then, um, last fall when I went, when I came to Utah, I, I don't call elk. I, that's probably something I could work on, but I'm like pretty shy when it comes to that. Uh, and so that's maybe something that I have to practice when my neighbors aren't home. And, <laughs> uh, we called elk to see them during writing season. And we also got really close. I mean, we were lucky, like 20 yards, maybe not even, um, and he was, you know, calling different cows and it was super exciting to see. Um, so I feel like I know like their anatomy well, and I follow tracks pretty well and I find their bedding. Um, you know, I know what to look for, but I'm always, I'm worried that I'm going to spook them off. Cause I always forget to be, you know, checking the wind um, or, you you know, I try not to be too hard on myself, but sometimes I think I'm a noisy hiker. Although according to my friend, I've improved. So <laughs> that bodes well. Learning about like their migration patterns and stuff just through like general research on ungulates has also been helpful. Um, a lot of it was hiking. So I spent quite a bit of the COVID lockdown in Montana. And so really learning to track wildlife there, um, you know, not to hunt, but just, you know, you're hiking and you hope to see some wildlife ungulates. Obviously I'm not like tracking bears or mountain lions. Um, and 
that has been hopefully helpful for when I go out in the fall. I mean, I'm all, whenever I go outside, basically, I'm always looking to see if I can find, you know, prints or droppings from something or other. Um, and in Utah, more often than not, you do find that. That's awesome. I think that experience of being close to elk, even in a non-hunting situation, is huge when you're then hunting elk because you've like, yes, the context is going to be different and you're going to feel different and you're going to have, you know, more excitement and all that of a potential shot opportunity. But just the mere fact of, in a sense, having been there, done that before, like having, like being close to an animal that's so big and like so majestic and so neat, it's going to be different when it's your first time hunting, but again, just like the experience of being close to elk, I think is, is just huge to help you have a little bit of like familiarity and hopefully a little bit less like anxiety or feel like you need to rush. Cause that's one thing that stood out to me. And I don't know if this connects with you, but when you mentioned being near those elk in Washington and that you were kind of in call it in their presence for a while. Mm-hmm. hopefully that's going to help remind you when you get the shot opportunity that you don't have to necessarily like force it and make it happen right away. Cause that's like our default, right? Like we get super excited and we're like, here's a shot opportunity. I have to do it now, 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 now. And then, you know, you tend to like rush and maybe you don't get as settled as you should behind your rifle. Maybe you don't take as much time as you should to like pick out the exact spot you want to aim for because you're just in a rush. Um, and so I think if, if you can like tie your previous experience to like, okay, I've, I've been near elk before I've been 40 yards away from elk before. And that moment didn't evaporate in 0.2 seconds. It's like maybe now when it is my first hunt and I have a shot opportunity, like it's okay. Take a breath, like take a second, like collect myself. Right. Um, so I would just, you know, personally, like, remember that, like, remember you've been there before this moment isn't going to evaporate and disappear into thin air, like take the time and do it right. And just, you know, don't be in a rush when that opportunity comes. Yeah, that's a great reminder. Um, I'm now reflecting on, I was, when we first saw those three elk, when we were hiking in Washington, it was probably originally from like, 200 150 yards away so it was really far i mean we spent at least an hour getting close and that was the first time i'd ever stalked wildlife and i remember thinking like what are we doing like this is taking forever and we're crawling on the ground and we like left our backpacks and we're like army crawling to get closer and trying to find like little shrubs to hide behind and you know, outsmart the wind and the angle there, um, where they were able to see and all, you know, try to have some cover. And it was a really cool experience. Um, it required a lot of patience that obviously was so worth it when we did get right over this little ledge that they somehow didn't see or smell up, or they were just, you know, distracted or focused on eating or something more important. And, once we were there, we got to watch them for like two to three hours. I mean, it was crazy to see their dynamics among this little, um, you know, group of bachelors and 
see them feed and rest and interact with each other and look around. And there really was no rush. Eventually it was like, okay, well, we've like got to get going or, you know, we've (laughs) got to get home. And that's the same way it was when I went last fall to go look at the rut in Utah was like the reason we ended up leaving that bowl that we are watching is because it was dark and you just couldn't see anymore. And so that is a good reminder that hopefully I will keep on the front of my mind um, that I'm more, you know, it's more important to be present and in the moment and with the animal than to like fire off a shot right away. Yeah. Cause I guess I would rather spend, you know, significant time in the presence of the animal than take it. If push came to shove, like that would probably be my preferred experience is to get close and to feel connected even if that means I overstay my welcome by a little bit and they end up getting spooked or leaving. Yeah. I think if you do that, like if you can stay present and patient, and then, as you said, like one of the most important things is just being mindful of that win. Um, like those are probably two for us, especially for elk hunting, like two of the ways you can blow it is by not paying attention to the wind and then not being patient. Um, you know, just making, making decisions without kind of like forethought or care because you're in a rush. So I think you're like, you're well on your way to having success for sure. That's super cool. More technical question. How often do you check the wind? So it kind of, for me, it just depends on, you know, so there's like fewer, at least in theory, the prevailing thermals, you know, based on time of day, right? So you'll hear people talk about, well, they're going to be falling in the morning uh, as the sun comes up and then the air heats up, you'll get that upward um, draft of thermals throughout the day. Um, And then again, as the sun goes down, temperatures cool, you'll get like another kind of down the mountain downward thermal. It's like, that's all true um, as a generality and pretty consistent, but then obviously you have the variability of wind patterns, right? So the, the called the cycle of thermals up and down with elevation and then wind patterns and, you know, wind tends to be consistent at times and then incredibly inconsistent, right? So I, in terms of checking it, I think the more, the better, especially as you're learning, um, because checking it with something like, you know, a powder, like an actual wind checker just gives you that visible representation of what the wind is doing. And, um, it's good. Like, don't worry about overchecking necessarily. Um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be like overly concerned with it in the sense of like, don't get only focused on the wind, right? Like still pay attention mm-hmm. still look up, still scan your surroundings, et cetera. Like use your other senses. Like you still want to, you want to be paying attention visually. You want to be ta- paying attention to like hear that bugle that may have been faint. So you can't get like total tunnel vision on the wind, but I would say in general, like, yeah, just, you know, check it, see what it does. Even on like, even the summer while you're scouting, while you're hiking, um, just be kind of paying attention. And then it's really, I found it, um, you know, the things that I've found over the years to pay closer attention to is little features of terrain and or cover that can change, like call it a local wind pattern, like wind in an isolated area. So for example, 
um, I could pick out a bunch of different hunts, but like an elk hunt, um, a few years back, we knew, um, we knew where this bull was and we wanted to make an approach and he was above us. And this was mid to late morning. So the sun had come up and the air was warming and the prevailing thermal was wanting to go uphill and he was above us. So it's like, well, we can't really sneak below him because this wind may take, uh, you know, the thermal is going to carry our scent up. But then you kind of look at terrain and you're like, well, if we, if we skirt over here and get in some cover, there's actually more shade. And so it's not going to be as warm and perhaps there won't be this warm upward thermal draft. And additionally, we saw like this little Creek draw. And so wind kind of likes to follow the water in a way, partially because it's cooler in a Creek draw. There's more shade, cooler air, even if the prevailing thermal on the mountain wants to be carrying upwards. If you get into a pocket where there's some cooler water and shade, you know, the wind may be kind of falling that draw. And so that's kind of what we did is we, we got down in that cover down in the Creek draw, we were able to get below the elk. And even though the main thermal was rising up the mountain, since we stayed low and in the shade and in that Creek draw, it was actually carrying our scent down away from the elk, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's just, great. Yeah. Those like transition times of like, you know, when it is transitioning from a cooler morning to midday, sometimes it's literally the wind could be doing one thing where you're at and something else 50 yards away based on sun exposure or based on even little terrain features, for example. Um, but you'll just, you know, it's one of those things that you'll get a better feel for, um, over time and then, um, can just kind of make some decisions and looking at terrain and cover and things like that to, to put the wind in your favor as much as possible. That said, once you start to really close the distance, um, and this can obviously happen more with like archery hunting, cause you're trying to get so much closer, but could be relevant with rifle hunting is there's just times where the wind was consistent for maybe the entire hour that you were just approaching this elk. And then you get a shift, you know, and that, I mean, that's happened so many times to me of I'm keeping the wind in my face and I'm approaching an elk and I've got either within bow range or almost bow range and boom, I feel that wind for whatever reason, hit my neck, blow towards the elk. And then the gig is up. And sometimes there's just kind of no avoiding that. Um, but yeah, for you, I would just literally, I would, I would be checking frequently just to get a feel for it. Um, and then at the same time, be realizing that as you check the wind, that's what it's doing where you're at. And then also look up, look around and think, okay, the wind's doing this here. What is it doing there on that Ridge or to that pocket, 200 yards to my right or my left or below me, for example. Those are great tips, especially the one about the, um, following the water. I'm going to keep that on the front of my mind. Um, and I guess while I have you, one more question I have is, do you have any resources you recommend for looking into the gutless method or seeing demonstrations or also gear recommendations for being able to field dress? I know there's a ton of videos out there. Um, I know off the top of my head that uh, Corey Jacobson with Elk 101 has a gutless method video. Um, and it's probably been a few years since I've watched it, but I'm sure it's still out there. And I recall, <clears throat> excuse me, it being very good. 
Um, I also know offhand that the guys from Hush, um, H-U-S-H, they have one. If I recall, there may there's may have been on a deer versus an elk, but the process is going to be the same, obviously. Um, so those are just two that I I know offhand are out there. I'm sure if you search YouTube, you get a bunch. But I would definitely definitely recommend those two because I again it's been a while, but I recall them both being thorough and um, simple to follow at the same time. So I would check those out. Um, in terms of like what you need. I just, I really wouldn't overthink that. Um, meaning like, I don't think you need, again, going back to like products and marketing, like there's companies out there that sell like a kit and it's like a case and there's this knife and that knife and, you know, this saw and like, you think you need six different implements to, uh, break down an elk, which just really isn't true. Um, on one good knife can do it. I do think it's, um, you know, like one, a guy with knowledge in one knife is going to be more effective than a guy with all the tools in the world, but not a lot of knowledge. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I, personally, I would recommend just a good fixed blade knife. Um, I think especially being newer that honestly, the replaceable blade knives can have some drawbacks. Um, yes, they're super convenient to just replace a blade. That's great. But Honestly, from a safety perspective, they scare me a little bit, especially for folks who are newer and just maybe aren't as used to like a taking their time and be realizing like where then how their knife is moving in relation to their own body and other hands, which may sound weird, but it's just true. Um, so anyway, I would recommend just a decent, good fixed blade knife, um, like something you can get super fancy, but something with like S30 V steel. Um, these days you can get something that's a great steal and you can get something pretty affordable. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just kind of, I think watching those videos helps, um, just some other random tips is, especially when you get into, um, I would just pay attention to lines. I know that's like a weird thing to say, but, you know, just pay attention to like on the backstrap, like literally all you're doing is following the spine and then following the top of the rib cage, like just pay attention to that. Like I can stay close to the spine, um, and go along it. And then I can stay close to the rib cage. And then when you get into like a front quarter, for example, um, you know, just paying attention to lines. And sometimes what's helpful with that is just moving sometimes your position or the position of whatever part of the animal you're working on. Right. So, um, a good example would be with like a front quarter is you could be working on like kind of that top surface side and you, you get there and you, you do some work, but then you're like, I'm not sure how to like get this thing off or whatever. Like as you bring up that front leg and expose the underside of the front quarter, it just, the more you can essentially exposed visually, the more things make sense. Um, if that makes sense. So this is more helpful. Um, and it sounds like you will be with someone, mm-hmm. but it's harder to do solo, but just like I would have, I would work together with whoever you're with and literally one person is like cutting. And then the other person is just helping position or lift like that leg, for example, so that whoever's cutting can just see better and have better access to what they're doing. Um, but yeah, and then just, you know, 
stay patient, take your time. Don't worry about like necessarily doing it quote unquote wrong. Um, you know, there's yeah. Like maybe you didn't do it perfect and you realize next time like, Oh, if I would have cut here, maybe I cut through this piece of meat that could have been one giant roast. And now I cut through it and it's two. Okay. So what? No problem. Um, so yeah, watch those videos, take your time while you're doing it, take your time. Um, and then, like I said, yeah, just try to make, remember that, um, once you really start getting a feel for it, there's a lot of logic to like, oh, there's a seam here I can cut there, or, you know, there's this joint I can cut there. But again, that's going to be more apparent to you as you kind of manipulate like a quarter, for example, lift it or turn it to actually see that. So if you're, if I would say, if you're in a position where you feel like you're trying to cut, but can't see, I would question that you should be able to kind of see where you're cutting and make sense of why, if that makes sense. Yeah. That was a that very does, that's good long advice. rambling answer. Sorry. No, I've that's never great. answered that question in that context. It's very um, consistent with your other advice about going slow and allowing yourself to have time to be mindful and think through things um, carefully. Yeah. I mean, and don't, again, especially like people may think it's like, you know, you you hear of meat spoiling, right? And obviously that's um, what none of us want right? We want to make sure that the meat's in as good a condition as possible and we don't lose any, but really the difference between taking your time and spending, you know, a few hours breaking down an elk, if you've recovered it in a decent time frame from the shot is just not really going to make a difference in most circumstances. So take your time doing it. Um, and then once, once you are ready, then it's just a matter of, as I'm sure you've kind of looked into of like, okay, where can I get this into shade? You know, if we're doing a pack out, that's going to take, you know, and uh, take us into the next 24 hours, for example, like mm-hmm. airflow is your friend. Shade is your friend. Um, again, going back even to like using water and that being a cooler spot, get it near water if you can. Cause often that's both shade and cooler temperatures. Um, just keep it clean. And, um, often it's, it's, I would say that meats is generally more forgiving than you would think. And we're probably, most people are probably more concerned with spoilage than they need to be. And as I say that, I don't, I'm obviously not encouraging anyone to take it lightly and leave it out in the sun or the heat. Again, like I'm just saying, when you use those basic precautions, it's, it's probably not as, um, as sensitive to like spoiling as quickly as you think it would be, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Um, One random tip that's helpful mm-hmm. is have something to set the meat on. So yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, so to, I put it on the ground or so, I mean, this, this question really highlights how new I am to this. So like, what do you put the meat in? You don't just shove it in your backpack, I assume. Um, yeah. So there's, there's game bags, right? That's what they'll be talked about as like a game bag. And some of those historically could have been like a pretty cottony material or shoot way back in the day, people literally used like pillowcases, just a cotton pillowcase. 
um, more call it quote unquote modern game bags. Like if you start shopping and start looking at game bags for hunting, a lot of those are synthetic materials. Um, they usually are, are going to be more reusable and a bit more durable. For example, um, there's a ton out there, like companies like Argali, uh, 6am outdoors tag game bags. Like there's a ton out there. Um, I do think that a good set of game bags such as those are worth the investment. Cause again, you typically are going to be able to reuse them again and again and again, just wash them in between. So a game bag essentially is protecting the meat from uh, outside factors such as like bugs, right? So um, both bugs and dirt at the same time, it's also allowing that meat to let some of that heat heat escape. And so, you know, using something like a game bag versus say putting it in uh, like a fully sealed bag, like say, a trash bag, for example, that just won't breathe. It won't allow the meat to cool. Um, so yeah, a good game bag I would recommend for sure. And then, you know, something, when I said something to set the meat on uh, specifically while you're working on breaking down the elk is okay. I just removed this front quarter and this front shoulder and it's kind of big and heavy and awkward. And especially a rear quarter is big and heavy and awkward, like handling that and without trying to let it get on the ground and get dirty and all that. Sometimes like if you're in timber, you can just kind of set it on a downed log that may nearby that, that may be nearby or rock that may all work great. Um, but there's times where, you know, you don't have something like that. Now it's, it's dirty or dusty or whatever. So I will typically pack always in my pack, a, um, a contractor bag, so like a heavy duty kind of garbage bag, the thicker mill contractor bags. Mm -hmm. And those can be used for all kinds of things, like a little emergency pack cover while your tents, you know, while you're sleeping at night. Or, I mean, there's kind of endless uses to a contractor bag, but often on a successful hunt, I'm breaking down meat. I'll lay that out. And that way, as I'm pulling off like a quarter or something, I can set it down there um, before I then get it in my game bag. Um, again, this is all much easier when you have someone with you. So it's going to be a huge benefit that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I love that you're talking about game bags because as somebody who's new to hunting, but listens to, you know, a lot of hunting podcasts, something that I think hunters often say is, you know, and then I just threw it in my bag in my pack. And yeah. they never say they put it in a game bag first because it's mm -hmm. so assumed. It's like if you were to listen to a podcast on running, nobody would say, and then I put on my running shoes. Mm -hmm. And so I just picture, I mean, I have since grown out of this, but in the beginning, I would just picture people like throwing chunks of meat in their backpack. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, wow, that is really bold like their wives must not mind doing like bloody laundry <laughs> that much if they're just like throwing meat around um and nobody ever mentioned the use of a game bag um so those are that's like one of the things as a new hunter when you were talking about how you know sometimes you wish you could go back to the learning process one of like the funnier things on the other now that i'm 
more knowledgeable than I used to be. I'm not going to say I'm on the other side of it because uh-huh. um, that's premature, but like one of those little things that's so obvious that nobody talks about, but if you're new to hunting, you need people to talk about. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Do you, so when I talked earlier about the gutless method, you seem to like, at least in theory, know what that was, but if we say, okay, it's the gutless method, are you going to quarter or debone? Do those two concepts, does that make sense? Or are you fuzzy on what those mean? Like quartering versus deboning? I'm not asking you to give me an answer. I just, do you want <laughs> I feel me to like go I'm on further? like a quiz. Like yeah, I'm in no, school. Exactly. I'm not asking you to give me the answer. I guess my question is, do you want me to elaborate on the difference between those two? Or do you feel like you have at least a high level understanding of what I mean when I say that? I feel like I have a high level of understanding because I'm familiar with the strategy to immediately take out the organs or guts to start the cooling process. Mm-hmm. That's something I've picked up on um, from the podcast I've been learning from. And so I imagine that gutless is you just, instead of cooling the animal from the inside out, really opening up the most inner parts of the animal to get airflow, you work quickly to take meat from the outside. Yeah. yeah and exactly. then you just leave the innermost part of the animal there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. And then, yeah, deboning. I mean, I put together just from knowing what the two parts of that word um, mean, but it does seem, because I don't think gutless is really, the gutless method is really talked about as, or it hasn't come up as much in the resources I've been exposed to. But now that I'm thinking about it, it does make a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. For me, especially since, you know, this is not going to be my trophy mount. I don't need to be taking, you know, the head and the antlers or spikes rather, um, that really just focusing on like getting the meat that will feed me for the winter and spring elk are big, possibly also summer too. Um, an elk can feed, a could feed me for many, many months if I'm so lucky and that the gutless method would make sense, um, in this case. Yeah. Yeah. So like, as you said, like the idea of gutting an animals to, to begin to cool it. Right. So a lot of the heat's going to be internal. Uh, if an animal were to die and then sit, that heat is then going to move from the inside towards the outside. So you're transferring essentially meat or sorry, you're transferring heat into the meat as the animal is sitting there if you don't gut it. So if you gut it, removing that heat source and also providing an opening to create airflow to allow the meat to cool. That's all great if like you're going to transport that whole animal, right? So if you're like hunting a smaller animal like whitetail and you're like, okay, I'm going to bring this whole animal home. I'm going to gut it. So I'm letting that heat escape. But yes, like we said for elk, you don't really need to gut it if you are going to be just begin removing the meat because now you're removing instead of removing the heat source you're taking the meat away from the heat source if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so and then the difference between like deboning versus what people most often just say like quartering an animal quartering meaning there's four quarters like a front both sides so you have two front quarters or front shoulders with the leg and then the two rear quarters which are the two rear hind legs so you have four quarters there and then obviously you're taking still the other meat, such as the back straps along the spine, 
Um, on elk, you get a ton of great meat off of like the neck, um, brisket. So there's other call people will call like trim meat or scrap meat. They're essentially referring to meat that's usable on the animal. That's not part of those four quarters or for those four legs. So the idea of quartering would be to remove that actual quarter. So like I was talking earlier about exposing the front shoulder, um, the structure of a, a shoulder actually isn't attached to the animal as weird as that may be. If you've never looked at that, the front shoulder essentially is kind of floating and it's held to the animal's um, central body, kind of like by muscles and tendons, that shoulder muscle is not attached like in a socket to another uh, bone or hip socket, like to contrast it a rear quarter you know, think of your leg, you have the top of your leg and the hip, and that's attached to a hip socket. So you have like a ball and a socket, an actual almost bone on bone connection. So if you're taking a front quarter, um, you can take that whole front shoulder and kind of the leg with it and then remove that same with a rear quarter. It's just that you have to kind of work into that ball and socket joint and kind of work that joint to quote unquote disconnect that rear quarter from the animal. But the big idea there, when we talk about quartering animals, like taking those larger sections, those quarters and all the meat that comes with it off of the rest of the animal's body. If I were to talk about deboning, the idea would be instead of like separating that rear quarter and taking the whole quarter and disconnecting the ball and socket and taking this whole quarter off, which has a ton of meat on it we'll leave the quarter attached. So like we'll leave the leg bone and the hip and all that attached to the animal. And we're just going to begin to take just meat off. Right. So essentially it's, is what it sounds like, as you said, is deboning. You're just taking meat. You're leaving all bones and everything back there behind. So theoretically, if you were to debone something, since you're leaving the bones behind, you're saving weight. That's true. But what you end up with is just a bunch of meat and it's shifty, right? It's not attached to anything. You just have all these giant chunks of meat. And I would say when you're newer, it's not, um, is apparent necessarily like how to separate those quote unquote chunks of meat. Right. So like a rear quarter, if you break it down properly, you can end up with like some very specific named cuts of meat, um, different roasts and things like that instead of making those decisions in the field and trying to get all that meat off, I would probably advise just quartering it. Like I talked before. So like figuring out how do I just remove this entire quarter? And yes, you're going to carry a little bit more weight because you're carrying the bone, but at the end of the day, you're going to end up with more salvageable meat because you didn't make all those decisions on like how to cut those, cut the meat and trim it and all that. And even if you do it yourself later, um, and you're not going to take your game to get processed, it would be much easier to have like a whole rear quarter that's been cooled and now it's at home. And then you can like do some more research on, okay, what's the best way to separate this and like follow this muscle tissue and look at that seam and create this quote unquote roast. It's easier to do that at home with cooled meat than it is to like try and do that in the field. Once again, when you're in a rush. Um, so I would in general advocate, yes, the gutless method, and then also quartering versus deboning, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes great sense. 
this is another very novice question. Bring it. So you're taking everything from like the hip to the hoof, the whole leg. So yeah, that's a great question. There is a natural, so you won't have, um, basically below the knee, you won't have any usable meat. Um, and you can, so you don't need to take the hoof. Um, this is another thing that like people will be, people will see someone like the photo of them packing a quarter and be like, you know, it's like, sometimes they mock and they're like, why'd you take the hoof? It's a bunch of unneeded weight. Maybe it was a newer hunter who didn't know how to separate it. Right. <laughs> like keep that yeah, in mind. That's going to be me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's a scenario where maybe a sock could come in handy. Um, but I, you also don't need one. Right. So this is a bit of technique, but literally with just a three inch hunting knife or four inch fixed blade, like I talked about earlier, this is another advantage of a fixed blade in my opinion, versus a replaceable blade knife is that, that joint, like think of your knee, um, basically you can separate that. It does take some technique and kind of like, again, as I mentioned prior, like moving things, manipulating things, seeing how they're connected and then working once you understand it. But long story short, you can separate the lower leg or the shit, like the lower shank, people will call it the hoof and the lower part of the leg with no meat, um, either by sawing it or by kind of looking into that technique and doing it with a simple knife or, if you feel super like that's way above my pay grade, or I want to figure this out later, you could certainly pack it, but there's no usable meat, um, basically below that joint down there. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm not super tall. I'm just picturing these like huge elk legs dragging yeah. behind me. Um, no, that's great. And another tip I did receive that, I don't know, maybe would help other listeners is that the YouTube app has a download feature so that you can, you know, you could save that video by Corey Jacobson or hush. Mm -hmm. And then as long as your phone has battery, you can play it out in the field and go along step-by-step, you know, pausing it when you need to. So that's something I um, plan on doing. It seems like for separating the lower shank that I should have a video cued for that because that can be tricky. Yeah. I'm sure there's one out there. I'll have to look at that and maybe, or if you find something, let me know, but I'll plan on hopefully including a link for that in the show description and then making sure that if you don't find one, I send one to you as well. Um, so that could be something like if you're, if you're day hunting, for example, and not backpacking, you're not super concerned with weight on every little thing. Um, maybe you do pack like a very small packable saw and just make that process easier. Um, Mm -hmm. or again, you know, there's kind of a technique to learn there that you can just do that, uh, with a knife. Thank you for answering that. That's, um, I think another thing that kind of goes without saying, uh, which is fine for most hunters because they know, but for new hunters, you know, I'm just picturing these like huge six foot furry legs coming out of my pack. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we didn't really, um, Another thing I just assumed and completely skipped over, but as I was describing all that process, whether you quarter or debone, like in the difference between those two, no matter which one you do, you are skinning back the hide to expose all of that, right? So when I say quarter, um, again, completely me skipping over things before you talk about like, whether we're talking about front quarter or rear quarter, before we talk about like removing that quarter, it's already been skinned. And so, um, you're not really pulling off a quarter with 
the fur with the hide attached, you're skinning everything back. Again, that goes back to what I mentioned about like visibility and looking and kind of seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you're skinning um, all that away, exposing the meat and you know tendons, ligaments, etc. And then when your quarter is going into that game bag we talked about, the hide's been removed. That's yes. there's a yeah. bunch of reasons for that. Like there's some old school guys who keep the height attached all the time. Cause it's like a natural protection or barrier, right? Like instead of potentially the meat getting dirty, you have the hide to protect it. Um, yeah, I get where they're coming from, but I would recommend skinning the hide, seeing what you're doing, letting the game bag be the protection, removing the hide again is also gonna help keep things or, or allow things to cool. Like the hide's not going to be trapping any heat, for example. So you're essentially using your game bag as a protection with everything skinned and skinning um, is going to be your first step to really that visibility. And then now you're going to look at uh, quartering or taking off the meat. And then on the gutless method, again, whether you're quartering or deboned, you essentially just work on one side of the animal at a time, meaning um, the animal's going to be laying in general on one side. Um, so say like the left side, you're going to do the front quarter and the rear quarter and the back strap and um, any of the other meat, like I mentioned, brisket, neck meat, et cetera, that complete side of the animal, you're going to get all the usable meat off. And then now you're essentially going to flip the animal over, skin the other side, um, and then remove that meat. As you're skinning, you know, I mentioned before, um, like having a contractor bag or some sort of ground sheet or a rock or something like that to lay the meat on as it comes off. If you, uh, as you're skinning the animal, if you kind of start up the spine and then work down towards the bottom of the belly, you can end up with actually like a large intact piece of the hide that you can then fold over. That could also be used just keep in mind as like a barrier right so essentially the hides facing the ground you have the underside of the skin facing up you could set like the front quarter on that potentially if you have um a larger section of hide that's usable as you've skinned it yeah that's good incentive to go slowly and carefully with skinning it because then you get to reuse it as a barrier any other questions that's like we I don't know, stuff hunters skip over or anything that comes to mind? Those are all I can think of now. Um, this has been incredibly useful. I feel like I ended up interviewing you towards the end, but it you did. was, I mean, I've learned so much. I feel a little less intimidated now, still intimidated, which is fine. I mean, part of why I'm so drawn to hunting is that it's challenging Um, you know, whether it's your first hunt or your hundredth hunt, um, you know, it's a good type two fun as they say, uh, yeah, I can't think of any other questions. Um, my next step is to buy that tag. It's in July, I believe. Um, but I'm not worried because they don't sell out. Usually it, it was like eight hours last year. And so as long as I'm there on the day. And so I'm kind of just trying to take it one thing at a time. Um, but yeah, that's all I can think of. Awesome. Well, I think you're, I think you, like I said before, you have, you've already done so much like research and planning and yeah, there's like some gaps to fill on gear and still figuring some stuff out. But even with the, 
the experience you've already put yourself into with being near game and scouting and doing all that. I'm super excited for you. And that's, it's going to be a huge asset for you. So you're well on your way. It's going to be awesome no matter what. And I'm super excited to hear about it. Um, stay in touch. Feel free to shoot me a message, you know, before then, like with any other questions. And then obviously uh, for you and the listeners, I'm excited to get you back on the show here later this fall after the hunt. Here's the, how things go and what you learned and then what other questions you have because of what happened in the field. That's going to be fun. Yeah, hopefully. Um, well, it helps from that episode where the person had to use their emergency button to like know that no matter what happens, I can just be honest about it. Um, not that I was like planning online about having this like huge trophy hunt, but uh, it's good to know that even if I, you know, don't take an animal or, you know, mess up um, in a way I find embarrassing that it's okay. So I appreciate that your podcast has stories of not ideal hunts too. Yeah. I mean, that's honestly part of it. Like I'm still making mistakes all the time and uh, shoot. I just, we recorded a podcast with uh, a guy we've had on the show before, but we kind of told the new story and this guy's legitimately one of one of the best hunters I know, um, like strategically and analytical and just makes great decisions. And in this story that this episode's not out yet, but will be out is like, he made this very stupid mistake and he would tell you that now, right? Like mm-hmm. he admits it, but like, that's just, even if you have a ton of experience and knowledge and normally you make great decisions, like sometimes you just, you make these decisions that it's only until afterwards you're like, why the heck did I do that? Like now that I've done it, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so yeah, don't, you know, obviously you're going to try your best and and make the best decisions you can, but I'm sure that there'll probably be some mistakes made on this first hunt in your 50th hunt. So it's, it's part of the process. Yes. Awesome. Well, appreciate it. Zoe, super looking forward to hearing the follow-up. Thank you. I will be in touch. Well, that's a wrap. I can't wait to chat with Zoe later this fall to hear how her hunting experience has gone, what lessons she has learned, and more. If you guys have anything for us, whether that's a question for the show or a story about one of your hunts that you'd like to share, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com and we'll talk to you soon.